Profiles and Strategy, a podcast series of talks by the U.S. Naval War College Strategy and Policy Department. I'm your host, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views of the Naval War College or the United States. Hello and welcome everyone to Profiles and Strategy. This is episode 24, um, uh, American Great Power Competition with a focus on, uh, on China and contemporary challenges. I am uh, Lieutenant Colonel John O'Gorman, United States Marine Corps, your host. Um, joining me today, my fellow colleagues from the Strategy and Policy Department here at the U.S. Naval War College. First, we have Dr. Andrew, a.k.a. Dex Wilson. Greetings. Next, we have Dr. Tim Hoyt. Welcome, Tim. Hello. Next, we have Dr. Jim Holmes. Jim, welcome. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Dave Stone. Welcome, Dave. Hey, everybody. All right. So I thought we'd start out the conversation. This week, it's it's um, somewhat of a... Um, uh, uh, a case that has gone through some some revisions. It used to be known strictly as retrospect and prospect, and I believe that was a title ripped straight off of a Alfred Thayer Mahan book. Correct me if I'm wrong, Jim. Yeah, uh, so yeah, yeah. So it used to be known as retrospect and prospect, and we used to take it and and look at theory and what are the challenges going forward. A few years back, with the shift to the um, I guess the pivot to the Pacific, and um, getting told by the National Command Authority hey, we need to focus on China because we think they're a strategic competitor. We added a more of a, an emphasis, a flavor of, of China into, into this particular case. And then through the subsequent years, it also morphed into kind of more, what are the contemporary challenges while still holding that retrospect and prospect flavor? But I wanted to start with this out by asking, what are the big kind of key ideas you think, taking into account the last 12 weeks that you think everyone should think about coming into the contemporary challenge week. And, um, and Dex, let's go ahead and start this one with you. Uh, yeah, I think, I think retrospect is, is absolutely crucial because the, the advantage of looking at strategic theory, course themes, concepts, and, and case studies uh, arms us with uh, an arsenal of tools that we can, we can take forward to analyze um, strategic challenges in the future without having the benefit of hindsight. Uh, we can draw on useful analogies uh, and on, uh, again, theorists and useful, useful strategic concepts to help, help us frame the, um, uh, the challenges we confront. I mean, classically, we go back all the way to the Peloponnesian War, this idea of the fundamental differences, not just in terms of cultures and societies and military capabilities, uh, but of strategic outlook between land powers and sea powers, between elephants and whales. Uh, and that's a, a, a really great concept to bring forward to think about, you know, the potential challenges uh, for the United States, sea power, um, to you know, confront a uh, primarily a continental power, China, but who has an increasingly capable uh, maritime presence. At the same time, I'm always, uh, always caution folks not, not to indulge in the uh, uh, the loose analogy, 
uh, and to, to claim that uh, everything we've seen now is just something we've, we've been, uh, played over in the past. So what we have to be aware of is the limitations of the retrospect. Um, these situations are new. War or great power competition is, is more than a true chameleon that changes its nature every time you see it. So uh, that sort of, that sort of uh, embrace of the, the value of retrospect, but also the limits of retrospect in terms of preparing for the prospective challenges. Awesome, great point, Dick, thank you. Tim, let's go to you next. Um, yeah, to sort of uh, double down on something Dex was just talking about, um, it's useful to be able to look at historical analogies, at least in part, because as Americans, um, our historical memory is fairly limited, and it's limited to primarily the period after the Second World War, um, which is a period of unusual predominance of the United States in the international system. And so we not only have not had very many peer competitors, we haven't had very many peers, period. And that makes this idea of great power competition sound ominous and threatening in ways that if we look at history, it doesn't necessarily have to. Great power competition is the norm. It is not the exception. In any international system at any period, there are a number of different great powers with a range of capabilities, uh, resource bases, and relative power, but they're acting to assert their own autonomy and pursue their own interests in an international system which is loosely governed, usually by some kind of cooperation or consensus. Um, and I think it's important to remember that competition lies on a spectrum in between uh, both cooperation on the one end and conflict on the other. Competition doesn't mean war, but it can turn into war. And one of the things that I see happening in the United States debate is that we're, we're definitely looking at competition with China with the idea of war being imminent. And whether it's Graham Allison from sort of an academic um, soapbox saying, you know, great power wars are inevitable. This is the Thucydides trap, even though most of that book is about how to avoid the Thucydides trap. And he actually comes up with 12 or 16 different sort of recipes for things we can do to avoid war. Um, and then uh, in our national security apparatus, people are really, really focused on war with China right now. Um, and that is a bad possibility. It's something we want to deter. It's something we want to avoid. But it's neither inevitable, nor is it in the best interest of either China or the United States. So having historical perspective allows us to operate in what seems like a very confined environment with perhaps a little bit more intellectual freedom and creativity. And to think about, we're gonna be working with China, there are gonna be things we're gonna to wanna to cooperate on. And then there are gonna be things that we don't want them to do. And a lot of competition is about the diplomatic nuances of trying to trade off and balance one for the other. If we want some, if we want them to help us with something, we may have to give somewhere else and figuring out how to do that. We have lots of examples in the course of states doing that, especially in the senior course, again, because it's more focused on long-term competitions. Um, I think the other trap we have to be careful of falling into, and I'll defer to Dave on this, but it's worth, it's worth raising. Um, lots of people, because our only great power competition in sort of modern memory is with Soviet Union, they think about China as a Cold War and the relative position of China in the inter international system compared to the relative position of the Soviet Union in the international system in the Cold War are very, very different indeed. China's um, so integrated 
with the international and the global economy that we have to be much more careful about how economic tools are used. And we have to be much more careful of the consequences of war. And in this particular case, that's one reason that we keep reaching back to the First World War. Again, as a historical example, where Britain and Germany had a great deal more to gain by working with one another than by going to war. And we had an international economy that was much more closely linked than it had been in previous eras. But we still managed to find a way to, to work ourselves into a conflict over interests and national security concerns. That's definitely as much worth studying as the Cold War itself, which I think is rather different than the competition we're going to have with China. So what I just heard you say there, Tim, was the Chinese weather balloon is the equivalent of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Is that correct? <laughs> um, actually, I'm really interested in weather balloons right now because I think we've only linked one to China. Um, and now we've found three others, and they could be from our reptilian overlords. We just don't know. <laughs> whether Russian or whether, yeah. <laughs> okay. Jim, why don't we go to you on this one? Yeah, the ones with the, the ones with the, that evidently have no visible propulsion source or uh, way of staying aloft are the ones that are uh, rather interesting. So I guess I guess we'll see. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, these, those guys have covered a lot of ground. I, I would actually go farther than Tim does about uh, about the United States or about the American people being more or less uh, historically forgetful. I actually think we have a cultural amnesia. We, we have an aversion to to, to taking uh, to taking history and putting it to work for us. I mean, I mean, think about it. When you say something, something is history. What are you saying? That's that's old news. I mean, that's yesterday. It's 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 of no further relevance. Henry Henry Ford does famously said, "History is more or less bunk. It is past. It has no relevance to the future, and so forth." I mean, that's a, that's an attitude that is profoundly against retrospective prospect uh, type thinking. Uh, I mean, it, it back when we used to read the retrospective prospect essay with our students, it was actually, it, to me, it was uh, one of my hands uh, better pieces. He was being very humble. I, and I think I think humility is one of the, one of the great traits to cultivate as strategic leaders as, as our students will be. Uh, Self-restraint, humility about our, about our own ability to uh, set the agenda and, and, about, and about our ability to outmatch our, our opponents. But... Uh, but I mean, he, he, he went and looked back into the 19th century. He looked at the, that the United States and Imperial Japan as it was coming out of its shell in the late 1860s, considered which side had transformed itself more spiritually, which side had transformed itself more materially. And, but, but, but basically, basically saw these, as, these rising powers as two, as two great contenders in the Pacific in the future. He did not prophesy war. He didn't, he didn't lay out specific predictions, but that at least let him chart trends from the past into the future. I mean, and he sounds much like uh, all the way back in the 1830s, Alexis de Tocqueville uh, basically did sort of the same thing. And he said, the, America and Russia are going to be the two big elephants in the 20th century. So you can, you can at least get a glimpse in the future of, by, uh, by using, uh, by using history, historical retrospect. As far as, as far as the more actionable aspects of it, I would just, I would just uh, repeat what I said on, on stage uh, last Wednesday. It is possible to, to have great ideas, to have ideas that can be made new through new, new technology, new cultural surroundings, new doctrine, or, or whatever the case may be, uh, as technology as technology catches on. I mean, think of, think about the range of precision guided, um, uh, precision guided long range missiles these days. I mean, those are those are the uh, the latter day equivalent of coastal artillery, and that makes the problem of off operating in the literal within range of those things much, much harder. And that's something that uh, the, the Navy, the Marine Corps, every, pretty much the entire joint forces uh, is grappling with, along with our uh, friends and allies, such as Japan, Australia, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. 
So a number of um, interesting kind of contemporary events going on right now, uh, which is which is why this case is interesting. And it's it's you know interesting to see if the the stuff that we've been been talking about over the past couple of weeks can be applied forward. Um, you know, Sansa talks about attacking your enemies' alliances and whatnot, and I. It, it, it strikes me, maybe it's a, an off-kilter comment, but, um, you know, Russia's war in Ukraine, we've been funding Ukraine. Um, is this, you know, and, and China and Russia are ostensibly in a, not, we won't call it an alliance, but the, what, strategic partnership, friendship, whatever you want to call it. Is this whole Chinese weather balloon thing some type of distraction to try to like, you know, <laughs> <laughs> maybe take some pressure off uh, of what's going on with uh, with the Russian Ukrainian thing or the Chinese trying to help out their their Russian allies here. Dave, why don't we why don't we start this one with you? So, I mean, this partially gets to your philosophy of history and what do you do you use do you, when you look at historical events? Do you see uh, a hidden hand at work or do you see incompetence? And so uh, more often than not, I think incompetence <laughs> explains things. It's hard for me to see lots of ways in which. Um, a Chinese spy balloon at this particular juncture is in Chinese interests. Um, much more likely, um, I think JFK during the Cuban Missile Crisis says there's always some jerk who doesn't get the memo. Um, so what, what, what I find interesting is, is when you ask about Russia's Ukraine war is just how little the Chinese have actually been doing to help the Russians uh, in this situation. Now, there's not a great amount that they actually could do, but I, I've been struck by the, the the dog that's not barking here. Um, the Chinese are not doing very much to help. Um, and I don't see that floating the balloon really helps them either. All that does is, uh, as Jim has eloquently said, gets the American public freaked out. Uh, and a freaked out American public um, is an, a public that cares a lot more about foreign policy than it normally does. Uh, and again, I just don't see that as, as a huge advantage to either the Chinese or to the Russians. And I'll leave it at that for the moment. Okay, fair enough. Dex, what do you think about this? Uh, I, I, you know, having spent uh, not as much time as I wished, but a lot of time in, in, in China um, for my adult life, um, uh, I usually default to uh, incompetence uh, over uh, strategic vision and um, and some sort of um, in, in inherent uh, uh, master plan. Um, you know, if anything, it's this. This is this is a uh, the the last few years have been bad for China, um, and, and they know it. And uh, they clearly uh, clearly believe that improving relations with the United States uh, is in their best interests. Uh, and the amount of legwork that went into Secretary Blinken's uh, now scotched trip uh, was basically just chucked out the window um, by this this uh, this incident. Um, and I think while the Chinese response was uh, to to accuse us of uh, of overreacting to um, uh, the balloon incident, they did not deny that it was their balloon. Um, so that is, to me, that signals, um, you know, an appreciation that that damage had been done, but they did not want to make that damage any worse. Um, so rather than, uh, yeah, bad enough that uh, Secretary Blinken canceled his trip, but the Chinese certainly don't want to use this as an excuse to, to damage uh, relations with the United States anymore at this particular moment. Uh, Jim, any thoughts on this one? You know, I've actually heard two versions of Robert Highland's favorite, his famous razor, his, his logical, uh, logical mm -hmm. rule. 
Never assume malice when you can assume incompetence instead. Although he puts a competent a code on there and says, "Don't rule out malice either." So it's a <laughs> kind, of, kind of kind of a fun one. I wasn't expecting that one to come up today. You know, I mean, there's a possibility. In fact, I, I did did a little bit of writing on this when the when the balloon thing first broke. It's I mean, there's a possibility. Yeah. I mean, if you if you think about what China is trying to do, it, it wants to take pressure off its its flank close to home in the East China Sea, South China Sea, uh, and and Yellow Sea. And I think I think I think. Yes, yes. Uh, gathering intel about what's going on on the ground in North America is probably gravy. I think that's uh, whatever they got out of that. My, my, I think that's probably good from their standpoint. But I wonder if there wasn't a cultural aspect. They're trying to test our reflexes and see, and see what posing a threat to uh, to the United States in front in front of Americans' eyes in their very airspace. I, 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 you have to wonder what if they weren't just sort of goading us to see what what, what sort of uh, stimuli might actually create that sort of uh, political overreaction. As as we saw, I've I've actually been shocked at how at how much legs that uh, that story has, and how and how, how much furor it, provo- it provoked in the in the uh, in the American people. So, if you want to if you want to do if you want to do things to try to distract the United States or whatever, I think they, they probably learned something about our culture that they don't learn about that they don't learn about reading the daily news out of the Western Pacific, where the PLA has built a, a rocket force and an air force and a navy that is specifically designed to kill Americans American soldiers, sailors, and airmen in large numbers. That doesn't seem that doesn't seem to that doesn't seem to resonate too much with the American people, but posing a threat to them at home just does seem to. So I, I you know, I, I don't have any specific evidence that that is the case, but it certainly makes sense to me, and and I think that it's, uh, and I think it, I think it would fit into, into China's way way of doing statecraft. Also, somebody I think it was Dax. I, I think he, it, it almost. It almost seems like China cannot help itself committing committing self defeating behavior. It reminds me of the old fable about the scorpion and the frog, in, in which the scorpion asks, asks permission for the frog to carry it across a stream, promises it won't sting the frog while they're on the way, and then because it's in its nature, stings it and they both drown. It almost it almost feels like China is like that. It it understands that what it's doing is self defeating, but at the same time, at, at the same time, it just doesn't seem to help itself being high handed towards, uh, especially towards powers in Asia that's, uh, that's, that 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 it deems lesser powers, whether it's the Philippines or whatnot. Hmm. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Dex. I I just think a little bit, uh, you know, there's kind of a uh, you have to understand the kind of the fractured authoritarianism that uh, is China. And that um, it's such a huge state, and so much of it is controlled by, well, ostensibly controlled by such a small number of people uh, at the very top. Uh, and that so much of what is done in China, if you look, for example, at the COVID, the implementation of, of COVID uh, shutdowns, zero COVID policy, there was there was central guidance, but there was almost zero central coordination of all these various local efforts either in implementing the lockdown uh, or in implementing the, um, you know, the attempts to moderate the lockdown to deal with Omicron and then the, the efforts to even back off of that. So much of it has, has been handled at the local level where independent actors um, in localities and in different ministries and in different parts of the country are ostensibly operating off the same central script but delivering the lines in in radically different ways, uh, and this leads to a lot of uh, incoherence, um, sort of domestically. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put it past the, the this this system to also produce these again. You know, somebody didn't get the memo, uh, kind of thing, or got the memo and interpreted it in ways that was like, aha, you know, we let's let's 
go above and beyond to make the boss happy, as it were. Okay, Dave, go ahead. Well, just to pick up on Dex's point about how authoritarian systems like this work, um, one of the, there's a, a kind of an image of a totalitarian system where the person at the top ex exercises complete control over people further down in the organization. And as Dex has suggested, that's generally almost impossible to achieve. And so generally what you're doing is the person at the top gives signals as the sort of thing you're supposed to be doing. Um, and that often gets overfulfilled or underfulfilled or fulfilled in ways that end up being perverse or counterproductive. Um, I think in some ways to bring it to the Russian parallel, um, the way in which mobilization of um, additional manpower for the Russian army was handled, in which case clearly there was a, a memo from up above, okay, we need 300,000 people, but don't put conscripts on the front lines and you know, don't take 50 year old fathers away from their families, but in a system like this, the message goes out, drag people, we need three, 300,000 bodies. Um, and so this gets implemented in all sorts of, of ways that are that are counterproductive. Now, again, this is not to say that the Russian state cannot do enormous amounts of military damage, and it has. It's not to say that China is completely incapable. It is absolutely not incapable. Um, but it is worth pointing out some of the ways in which authoritarian systems make mistakes. Democratic systems make mistakes too, but authoritarians have their own sorts of problems. Mm, yeah, great, great point. Uh, Tim, any thoughts on this one? Um, well, first off, I mean, again, double down on the authoritarian thing. Um, we have a myth that authoritarian regimes do better both at foreign policy and at war because they don't have to deal with all this messy politics. And what we know about authoritarian regimes is usually there's faction fighting going on somewhere below the guy at the top. Um, but also, if we look at performance in war, um, authoritarian regimes frequently lose to democracies. And that's something, again, a historical lesson that we need to continue to evaluate um, because, in fact, democracies have enormous strength when it comes both to long-term ec economic competition and to war. Um, and again, this is a place where history matters, but in the American sort of tradition, we have created a myth that is almost contrary to our own history. And that's that's something, again, that I hope the strategy and policy course contributes to breaking that down and breaking down that impression. Um, one thing we're seeing in Ukraine, certainly, is that although Ukraine is an imperfect democracy, um, it has proven capable of going to enormous levels to defend itself, uh, to mobilize resources, to mobilize international support, and to be prepared to carry on a conflict for much longer than an authoritarian state thought would be necessary. Um, and that is having severe impacts on Russian war making capabilities. Why, um, so it was interesting the response, we, we, we tell students to you know, think about the political object and the value of the object before trying to formulate a military strategy and, and whatnot. Um, we choose to shoot this thing down and then apparently there's some other shoot downs happening over in other, other parts of the country as well. Um, which, you know, information still to follow on that, right? Um, but we wait to shoot it down until after it had, you know, come across most of the country. Is, is this a signal to China or is this a signal to a domestic audience? What do you, what do you think is, is, is going on here? Uh, Jim, let's start this one with you. 
Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I haven't, uh, I wasn't involved in tracking it. I mean, the, the Pentagon said that uh, we were worried about if we shot it down over over domestic territory that there might be at the risk of debris hitting hitting people on the ground below. So there was where there was worries from a trinity and a triangular standpoint as as far as that went. As far as the, I'm not exactly sure what the signal would be if it, if you if, if you did that. I mean, what's what signal exactly would we be sending? I guess I mean there was a, people who dislike President Biden said he's weak and so and feckless and so and so on and so forth. I you know I, I don't I, I don't subscribe to that way of thinking myself, but but you did hear that quite a bit. But yeah, I, I just don't I don't I do yeah I just don't see what the what the signal would have been. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I got nothing. Okay. Okay. What <laughs> did you have a response on the other thing? Oh, oh, oh no. Yeah, well, this conversation forgot, kind of moved on. We were talking about regime types. I was just going to, I was just going to put in a plug for the students who haven't uh, talked about it. Aristotle's famous uh, uh, way of classifying political regimes. He basically breaks it down to six, so, sort of uh, two each of, of a corrupt and, 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 a, and a sort of beneficial or a healthy regime. Uh, ruled by the one being either kingship, which is good, tyranny, which is bad. Ruled by the few. Uh, aristocracy being the good form, uh, oligarchy being the bad form, and then uh, ruled by the many, uh, basically mob rule, which he called democracy being the bad form, and then and then polity sort of being rule by the many in the interest of the state. So, and of course, and of course, he he differentiates between good and corrupt regimes by whether they are ru ruling in the public interest. So it's easy for the tyrant to, to rule in the tyrant's interest. The king at the king tends to be the public spirit. A great place. It's found in the politics. It's very, it's very straightforward, like a lot of his writings, and it's a wonderful place to start analyzing the nature of regime, whether it's our own Russia, China, our allies, friends, whoever the case may be. Mm. Okay, good deal. Um, yeah, Tim, any thoughts on uh, on this one? In in terms of recently unidentified flying objects, or more identified in some, in at least one case, everything we've seen in the press suggests that um, at some level national security officials in the US government said, we're not gonna take this balloon down over territory because it's the equivalent of several school buses worth of, you know, like a one ton weight under the balloon. We don't want this falling somewhere where it's gonna hit American citizens. So they let it go until it was over water. Um, that seems entirely plausible to me. Uh, there have also been reports that we jammed it so that no useful information was flowing out of it. I don't know if that's correct or not. I would, it would seem to be a reasonable thing to do as part of allowing it to come across the country. In terms of message, I think the important one is actually came a day or two later when the Canadians said, hey, we have one of these two. Can you help us with that? And we said, sure. Mm. Right. That's a clear and positive message. You're a NATO ally. You're our next door neighbor. You are our friend. You need help with this, we got it, and we got it, right? So I would tend to look at that as the strategic level mm -hmm. consequence, perhaps more than the more sort of um, tactical and technical uh, parts of the initial episode, which are, when do we take it down? What do we do with it? What is it? I mean, that's all understandable, it's important, but if we're looking for strategic messaging to China, one of the things that we did, if this other one was Chinese, well, we took it down for a friendly power. Mm. And that should be an indication of something. Um, it, it at least gives them something to think about in the di diplomatic realm, because closer to their homeland, we have friends with whom we have similar commitments. Mm -hmm. And this may, in fact, be signaling of some kind. And, and certainly, uh, Dax, I want to go to you. Certainly, this is a ratcheting up of tensions in terms of signal, you know? 
Yeah, yes, it is. Um, and I, I, I don't think it is in uh, China's best interest to be doing this at, at this particular point. Um, I think, you know, per Tim's Tim's point there, um, the, the Chinese seem to have been going out of their way to antagonize the Canadians, um, you know, for the past decade. Um, and it's done nothing but kind of strengthen uh, our partnership with them. I think uh, one of the absolutely m most loathsome things the Chinese have done in recent memory, among many, um, this of course does not touch the, what's going on in Xinjiang by any, by any stretch of imagination, but was uh, imprisoning uh, two Canadians. Mm -hmm. um, completely fabricated charges um, and and doing it purely out of spite um, to punish uh, to punish the Chinese uh, to punish the Canadians for cooperating uh, with the United States uh, when it came to the Huawei investigation. Um, so that sort of uh, again this sort of uh, this this self destructive behavior. I mean, if if you're gathering information of value it, you, it shouldn't come as any surprise that the you know chinese are surveilling us or that we're, we're surveilling the chinese um but um but again once you once you once you migrate into the realm of messaging which you can't avoid most often intentional mess messaging backfires hmm. um as as if you know the inadvertent messaging is bad enough. <laughs> Intentional mess messaging is even worse, uh, especially if you simply don't uh, don't understand uh, the audiences with, with whom you're uh, communicating. I think China's understanding of domestic politics in the United States has gotten much, much better over the past 30 years, but I think it's still deeply, deeply flawed. Mm. Okay. Jim, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to offer a two-figure on what Dex just said and uh, what you all have been talking about with signaling. Uh, uh, in the late Cold War, Edward Lutwak published a really nice short book called The Political Uses of Sea Power. And he's he's actually worried about how to use fleet movements and exercises and whatnot, all the things we do in an era of uh, peacetime strategic competition to broadcast messages. And he says it's really hard to do, and he goes through all the reasons. I mean, it's really it's really easy to send false signals. The the you know the uh, the recipient, the audience for that signal has has a vote, obviously the decisive vote in how how that audience uh, interprets it and so forth. He almost th seems to throw up his hand, and but he basically says, look, the fleet the fleet really ought the fleet commander really ought to have some sort of political advisor to help to help tune messages that are sent when we do things in the South China Sea, freedom of navigation operations, gray zone operations, whatever whatever the Navy, the sea services are actually doing so it's it's definitely a problem i'm not sure i'm not sure there's an easy solution but it, just like just just like uh, with alcoholics anonymous uh, if you know you have a problem that's the uh, the first step towards the solution so i hope we I hope we are cognizant of that good deal um so i want to pull on the so dex you mentioned um foreign citizens being imprisoned in by authoritarian regimes yeah um so there's an American citizen, Paul Wellen, former U.S. Marine, who's still in a imprisoned in Russia. Um, Dave, I don't know if you saw the headline, but it just came out today from the State Department. And said all uh, U.S. citizens get out of uh, get out of Russia. Do not travel to Russia. You know, can't protect you. Whatever. Um, so war in Ukraine not going well. Um, obviously, a, a complicated problem. But why do you think this is coming out now? Like, what what's what's going on? Again, is it overall heightening of tensions? What's what do you think is uh, what do you think is happening? 
Great question. So I, I had not seen the news uh, about State Department advisory to get out of Russia. Um, clearly, I, I think for a long time, that's been the smart thing to do. Mm. Um, and I think actually the case of Brittany Griner is illustrative um, in that sort of what seems like a fairly innocent error involving a little bit of, of CBD oil get, ends up getting her thrown into a Russian prison. And these are not healthy places. Um, so that's a non-trivial thing is to take some random person off the street who happens to be an American citizen, put that person into a Russian prison for a long period of time. Um, and so I think what that that's the signal sent by that earlier incident was right, right in line with what State Department was 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 saying. And it gets back to Dex's point. Um, it's clear then that Russian authorities are willing to take American citizens who have no connection to any sort of government or military organization and put them in prison to send a political signal. Um, and so if I were an American citizen in Russia, I would get out and I would have gotten out long ago because this is clearly a regime either that sends signals like arrest this random American or is perfectly willing to stand by while some enthusiastic local official arrests an American citizen. Um, now, I've spent a lot of time in Russia, but I spent a lot of time in Russia in a different place and in a different atmosphere. Well, I was fairly confident that an American passport meant that I would not be subject to that level of harassment by Russian officialdom. Um, but I would make no longer make that assumption, let alone traveling as a DOD employee. But as a, even as a private citizen with no DOD affiliation, that's just not something I would be willing to do right now. Um, and again, I think so what the State Department is saying, I, I think, has been a message that any thinking individual in Russia should have taken a long time ago. Mm. OK, uh, Tim, any thoughts on this one? Uh, no, just that, um, you know, again, there are. There is probably another aspect to this. I'm not sure how important it is. Um, you know, in the past, when, when the State Department has advised Americans to leave other countries, it has had, at least briefly, significant economic effects um, because you're pulling a lot of people who work in businesses in that country out of that country. And there's also sort of a follow on wave effect for some time of American businesses not being eager to invest in that country again. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure that this is not what the State Department is most concerned about at this time. If they issued a warning, they probably have really good reasons to tell everybody to get out, or at least they they have concerns. Um, but it will also simply accelerate uh, the impact of some Western sanctions. Um, because again, you're gonna be moving people who may still have decided to stay on there because they were getting a good paycheck and their firm somehow was able to operate. Now you're going to pull them out. And again, it's, it puts more stress on a Russian economy that has suffered some from Western sanctions, withdrawal of Western business, has suffered some maybe more from emigration as uh, skilled workers in Russia left because they didn't want to get conscripted at some point in the future. Um, and now you're pulling out even more of the potential sort of expatriate uh, technocratic community. That will, again have some marginal impact on sanctions on Russia, I suspect. Again, I would agree with Dave, however, the main reason for this is Americans shouldn't be in Russia right now. It's an unpredictable and erratic place and it's at war and we are participating with the per the state that they're at war with. Mm. Okay, go ahead, Doc. Yeah, I, I just saw that as part of that story that uh, there was a, some sort of special warning to religious workers. Um, I think, you know, people on mission uh, and the like, uh, might be might be um, uh, fingered as as targets mm. in this, um, which is overall you know obviously there there is in there is a religious dimension to um, 
post-Soviet Russian uh, thinking. Um, so I don't know if this is this is sort of uh, part for the course in terms of um, mistrust for uh, you know uh, transnational uh, organizations, uh, different missionary enterprises. I mean, you see this definitely in China uh, in recent years, um, sort of crackdowns on uh, foreign religious groups operating in China and also uh, 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 Chinese citizens. Uh, developing an interest in uh, Christianity or Buddhism or definitely, God forbid, Islam, um, you know, in the eyes of the state. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, that's all uh, highly problematic from their perspective. But it also, as, as Tim says, not only uh, hurts, can hurt the local economy, can, but also can hurt the level of knowledge on both sides uh, of the other, mm. right? So, you know, uh, as Dave was saying, it's like, yeah, even at the depths of the, the, the Cold War, one could still get a visa and travel around and hit the archives and do stuff uh, and develop, you know, less than a cartoony version uh, of the Soviet Union. And, and likewise, COVID has been horrendous for developing for, or ma maintaining even the modicum of, of awareness of the other. Mm. Um, and I think a lot of the misinformation, but also simply the difficulty of doing business or even traveling to these places uh, really is, is cause for tremendous concern because uh, folks just tend to default on these simplistic uh, images. Uh, so when we when we look at China now and we hear about things like um, social credit and the like, or we look at the COVID lockdown system, we look at this sort of as this uber security surveillance um, state uh, on hyperdrive uh, that is the fundamental antithesis of the United States and therefore is a, is a, is a force for evil in the world that we simply cannot peacefully coexist with and and nothing could be further from the truth but it is has become the kind of image that many of us embrace when it comes to, to looking at China um, and likewise the cartoonish image that many Chinese embrace of what the United States is like uh, just how violent uh, and and ravaged sort of domestically ravaged uh, it is um, by violence by uh, racial and, and and political divides is, is uh, um, you know that, that those are those are dangerous images for uh, uh, these foreign audiences to embrace uh, when when they only they don't tell the complete picture. So, Dave, we'll go to you next. So, just very quickly on Russian religious policy, uh, this is something that long predates Vladimir Putin. Uh, back under Boris Yeltsin, the Russian state defined four traditional religious faiths that are native to Russia: so Orthodox Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Judaism those they saw as genuinely belonging in Russia. And other traditions are alien. So Catholicism, Protestantism um, are alien faiths. And so in, to a sense, uh, exist on sufferance. Uh, and so I think this does a couple things. One is it sort of throws, uh, throws red meat to um, Putin's Russian nationalist supporters. Uh, the, the Orthodox Church in Russia has been very supportive of him. This is something that certainly they would be excited about. Um, and again, it points to the vulnerability. There are a lot of, and have been, um, Western missionaries going around Russia, but they're extremely vulnerable because often they'll be in small towns or small cities. They're sort of by themselves. They don't particularly have great connections to the U.S. government. Um, and so they would be easily targeted for sort of Russian police harassment. And so, again, I think there's a, there's, there's, there's good reason for in those Americans in particular to, to not be in Russia right now. Hmm. Interesting. Jim, go ahead. 
Yeah, I was just going to add to to what Dave was talking about and, and take it outside the religious realm. I mean, uh, uh, non-governmental organizations have always been, they've been controversial in Russia for a long time. I mean, they, it, it was commonplace in the 90s and into the early 2000s to look at these as agents of a, an unlimited policy and strategy by the West to, to unseat the, the Russian regime. I mean, they looked around at Ukraine and places all the color revolutions, and they thought that uh, that uh, NGOs were st were standard bearers for that. My last time in Russia, and I guess it will be my last time in Russia. I I, I was actually over there as a member of an NGO. We we did not proliferation, export controls, and whatnot. That was during a time in which uh, Prime Minister Putin, he was Prime Minister at the time, uh, saw saw the need for a thaw to show that Russia was actually was actually receptive to, to NGOs. And therefore, it was a little bit, it was a little creepy just because we, we, we knew darn well we were political instruments being used by Russia to, to, uh, to send, a, send a message uh, to, to the West and, and, the, and, the, and the rest of the world. So, that's a, so, so again, it's a, it's, we, we tend to think of these things, uh, NGOs, as being apolitical and so forth. And they're, they're not actually uh, seen, seen like that uh, necessarily overseas. The other point was on, China, on businesses in China. One thing I've, one thing I've found. My last thing I did, my last outing I did before COVID hit in early 2020 was up to up to Babson College for for, for an overnight uh, to talk to a bunch of uh, CEOs and CFOs of companies that you've heard that did business in China, and they wanted they basically wanted to know should we continue doing business in China. It, it, it became, it's it's quite clear. I think businesses have had, had a real shock because if you're a business person and you want to do business overseas. You tend to assume that when you conclude a contract uh, with with a foreign government or, or whatever the case, it's it's it's, a, it's a, an apolitical contract for mutual gain between for the host country and also for the business. They have they do not understand that they that they are they are tools of politics. They are subject to politics when they when they are over there uh, doing business in China. And I think they, I think they've kind of, they've come to realize that. And I think that explains that explains some of the uh, some of the. It almost feels like it almost feels like a cultural revolution within the American business community as they come to terms with this. So there's a cultural the cultural aspect with them as well. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. Oh. Um, so uh, next, I figured we would move the conversation to kind of talking about a since we talk about our our course concepts and course themes, um, still keep it with on on Rush Air for uh, for a minute. Um, War termination. Um, in the course, we talk about the concept of war termination course theme, and we say there's three key questions in terms of um, what's the demand politically, how far to go militarily, and then how do you enforce that peace? So it would seem like the war termination prospects for Russia and the Ukraine to figure out a limited war, war termination process uh, are are bleak at best, and as we were we were talking just before the um, uh, we started the podcast here, uh, apparently the Russians are preparing for a new offensive in 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 Ukraine. Is this a way to kind of um, improve their their leverage and their bargaining posture prior to trying to to maybe uh, you know save some face with a, in a in a war termination um, event? Dave, why don't we why don't we start this with you? Um. Sure. So it's it's difficult to know for sure exactly um, what's going on. Uh, by some accounts, the Russian offensive has already started. Um, so the Ukrainians are talking about how they're destroying um, Russian attacks. Um, the we we are we are rapidly approaching the one year anniversary of the beginning of the war, and I'm sure Vladimir Putin would like to have something concrete to show for it. Um, and so wouldn't be surprising at all to see uh, a Russian offensive coming at this point. Um, 
what exactly that looks like, what exactly it's designed to achieve, is difficult to say. And the basic reason is that Vladimir Putin has not been able to articulate a coherent set of war aims from the very beginning. The war started off as the demilitarization, the denazification of Ukraine. It's changed to territorial goals, these four provinces that he has annexed. Um, and he's gotten himself into a bit of a problem. And this is a, a kind of a technical point of Russian law, but it's really interesting. Um, Putin has made it law that you, it is illegal now to disavow Russian territory, to even consider the idea of giving up Russian territory. He's now declared that big chunks of Ukraine outside of his control are Russian territory, including Kherson, um, which he lost back to the Ukrainians. So if he, if Vladimir Putin were to suggest uh, a piece on the current territorial lines, what he actually controls, that's against Russian law. Um, anything short of territory that he doesn't actually control and has never controlled um, is a violation of Russian law. So Vladimir Putin's war aims are not at all clear. Um, for, to, for him to be in a position to negotiate the end of the war, he'd have to figure out what it is he wants. And I'm not clear that that's happened. Now, the Ukrainians, by contrast, have been very clear about their war aims. They're difficult to achieve. That is complete liberation of all Ukrainian territory, including Crimea and the Donbass. Mm. Um, hard to do, not necessarily impossible. I absolutely wouldn't rule it out. Um, but yeah, I think given stated positions so far, there is no meeting of the minds. Both sides have staked out positions that would be difficult to sustain. Now, what happens uh, with the verdict of six months more fighting? It, like Clausewitz says, chance matters. The results of the battlefield are going to matter, and we just don't know yet. Um, are the Russians going to be able to wear down Ukraine and wear down Western supplies? We don't know. Are the Russians going to run out of men and tanks? We don't know. Do the Ukrainians have it in them to launch an offensive that would actually liberate not just uh, the occupied territories in the east, but also manage to make it into the Crimea? We don't know. Um, all these things uh, are dependent on the verdict of the battlefield, and we just can't say yet what, how that's going to shake out. Claus Whitson chance comes into play here, it looks like. <laughs> Tim, why don't we go to you next in this one? Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything Dave said. I think if if the most plausible theory of victory so far that I've seen for Russia is that if the aim is to take the other regions of the Donbass, you just continue fighting and hope that Western will and support for Ukraine breaks before Russian will does. Um, and that's a bit of a gamble. Um, it may if that's really what he's thinking, it may be underestimating, even, even though Western support for Ukraine has at times been slow and at times been somewhat reluctant and has sometimes involved a lot of debate, um, it has been quite significant and it appears to be an ongoing thing um, and a very serious commitment by a number of states, especially the United States, the United Kingdom, but also Eastern European members of NATO. And Germany is continuing to act in ways that we would not have expected four or five years ago in terms of supplying arms and, and supporting NATO. Um, so that doesn't seem like a very, a very plausible theory of victory. Um, one might then suspect that if the war goes on for another year and it's not going well, um, that Putin or whoever's in charge of Russia might consider some kind of negotiation that would allow Russia to save face. As Dave pointed out, that doesn't appear to be where Ukraine is focused at all right now. Certainly they want to take back the land that they've lost and they have not ruled out Crimea. Um, so yeah, I don't see necessarily, it, it takes two to make peace usually. And I don't see a meeting of the minds here. 
Um, I would I would bring in another variable because it's one that we don't talk about a lot in the course, but it was a really good question that was asked to me when I was in Ireland giving a talk to the Irish Defense Forces on what was going on in Ukraine. And they were like, well, you know, what happens after the war? How do you preserve the peace? And is there room for a UN peacekeeping force? Because that's what the Irish army mostly does is UN peacekeeping force. And that actually triggered a bunch of interesting thoughts, because as we know, support for Ukraine is um, it's not universal, right? There are a lot of states in the developing world have sort of they're doing what's in their best interests. Um, and one of the things that's in their best interest in the case of India is buying a lot of Russian oil right now because they get it at a highly discounted price. And that's good for India. Um, it sustains the Russian war effort to a certain extent. But India has not aligned with Russia. It's not providing arms supplies. It has not condemned Ukraine. So one of the major contributors to UN peacekeeping forces is the Indian army. Um, similarly, Pakistan has taken advantage of the availability of Russian energy supplies. So it is also keeping a sort of a foot, certainly in the Russia camp, I'm not sure how much in the Ukraine camp. But Pakistan is also a large contributor to UN peacekeeping operations. So is Bangladesh, um, which again is fairly unaligned in the current problem. And this is at least partly a function of distance. Look, we saw this in the Cold War as well. Um, you know, the CETO alliance didn't commit a great deal to NATO unless the members were also NATO members. Distance matters, right? And, and, and affects national interest in how you approach problems. But one could see, at least in theory, if a deal is made, there is some possibility of finding relatively neutral partners who could provide fairly large amounts of troops for a very large border, um, who might be able to fill that kind of role. I think it would be a bigger PKO than we've ever seen, if you really wanted to make sure, because, because of the, the size of the states involved and the size of the border. But at the same time, it's not inconceivable given geopolitical dynamics. Um, now, Again, how we get there, I don't know. Um, and I'm not optimistic for the coming year. Okay, Jim, we'll go to you first. Yeah, I think the, the conversation sort of moved, uh, but I'll, I'll rewind us just a little bit. We, we started off talking about uh, talking about war termination and we went, we went to Russia. And I was gonna make a point both about Russia and about uh, China. Think, think about think about it's it's a really powerful thing in negotiations to make a, to make a really stark promise that you cannot back away from. I mean that 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 that, that bolsters your credibility with your with your adversaries, with uh, third parties, and so forth. And I think that, I think that's what Dave was saying that Putin has done uh, by basically promising to occupy territory that Russia has never held. He's and, uh, and by the way, Xi Jinping he does the same thing regularly with regard to Taiwan in particular, but also the Sinkaku Islands in the East China Sea and, and also China, uh, China's maritime claims in the south china sea so that is so that so that's a that's a good thing that's the, that's that's the upside of, of taking a really hard bargaining position the downside is that the, these leaders have now made themselves accountable to their people to deliver they put themselves on they, they painted themselves into a corner they have made specific promises and they've connected those two to a sovereignty and national pride and now they have to deliver so it's a, so again that's a really that's a that's a really dangerous thing for an authoritarian leader or really any really any political leader to, to do, and yet I think that and I think it's extremely unwise what they've done, but nonetheless they have done it, and I think that uh, that makes very very uh, with respect to war termination, they've declared how what they're demanding politically, they have to go a long way to get it militarily, 
and that and that and that translates into a to an unflinching approach uh, to to the war effort. And I think I think Tim's exactly right. I think that, I think we poss- possibly are looking at a long term stalemate. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, we'll go to Dave first, then. So just very quickly, I mean, as Tim was alluding to, the the peacekeeping problem would be enormous, like literally enormous. The border is 1,400 miles long. Um, And so imagining the number of peacekeepers to meaningfully monitor a border of 1,400 miles is is really, really difficult to imagine. Um, One of the interesting things about, uh, so Jim is is absolutely correct that both sides have staked themselves to extreme, and again, it's not extreme for the Ukrainians to want their country back. Uh, So I say extreme, not because it's unreasonable, I say extreme because it would take a lot of military effort to make it happen. Um, What's interesting though, is Zelensky seems to, by what we can judge from Ukrainian opinion polls, have the support of his public, at least for the moment. Um, Some super majority of the Ukrainian people want all of Ukraine back, including Crimea. Now, does that change with increasing uh, casualties, with poor weariness? We don't know. But at least for the moment, he seems to have backing of the public um, in a democracy, an imperfect democracy, but a democracy. Um, Vladimir Putin's support, anybody's guess. Very hard to know uh, under the, the t- present circumstances. Uh, go ahead, Jim. Yeah, I was just going to reply right, just very briefly to what Dave just said. I, I wonder if Ukraine doesn't have an advantage in this because because nobody expects it to win. I mean, it's totally by net assessments uh, methodologies, it's totally outmatched. So I think so. I think that I think Zelensky possibly is 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 exempt at least a little bit from what I was just saying. Nobody nobody expects Ukraine to be able to overwhelm Russia, and therefore therefore I think he might get away with uh, with, with with promising big things because nobody nobody. In, in a in a mili- a strict military world, nobody nobody would expect him to to deliver. So I think he might actually have a little more flexibility. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Dex. Uh, I, I just sort of thinking outside the box. Uh, not a case we do in the uh, in the S and P course, but in the S and W course, uh, the Russo Japanese War, wherein um, you know an emerging great power, the United States, uh, uh, offered its good offices um, as an honest broker for the. The termination of that conflict, uh, host hosted the peace talks, uh, as it were, and I think you know, uh, I I think it would be a relatively well, not philosophically uh, or institutionally possible. I think um, uh, I think China could actually uh, very successfully play that role here because I think it's got um, things to offer many sides, and I think it would actually be in China's best interest to demonstrate. You know, it's it's um, uh, that it's got the chops to be uh, a global power, hmm. in the sense of of you know res- resolving um, uh, an interstate conflict that's a threat to the entire international community. Hmm. Um, and I don't think that you know, given this is one thing that I think Xi Jinping, if he decided he wanted to do, uh, could probably do. Um, obviously, to require a lot of sort of rhetorical gymnastics um, to kind of move the needle based on some of the stuff that uh, Xi Jinping said in the lead up to the conflict and the way he appears to have given a green light, at least on, on in terms of moral high ground to uh, Putin's position. But uh, I think the, the scales have decisively shifted in the balance of power between Russia and, and China to say the least, and that this would be an interesting opportunity for international arbitration. Mm. Interesting. Um, so I just kind of throw that out there as, um, you know, rather rather than have your your advent onto the stage of a superpower as as being uh, primarily just a revisionist to be actually rather than a peace breaker as it were to be a pe- more of a peacemaker when it came to uh, uh, 
the, the current crisis in, in the global system. Mm. Okay. So since we're, we're pushing towards an hour here, I want to ask a, a wrap-up question for everybody. And uh, so kind of a two-part question. Um, and it's, what do we think about going forward with our contemporary challenges? But the, the caveat is we spent the last 20 years doing global war on terror, uh, regular warfare, um, insurgency coin type, type things. Now it seems that we've been uh, in some ways forced to think about more great power competition because of, because of what is, um, is happening in terms of world events with, with, with Russia and China. But going forward, how do we still preserve those lessons and yet also think about the new challenges of the future? Um, Tim, start this one with you. Okay, uh, well, a couple of things. Um, the first is uh, we may want to forget about irregular warfare, but there are going to be a lot of people who are going to practice it who aren't going to forget about us, um, and they're going to draw us in. Um, one of the reasons that the war between Russia and Ukraine is so shocking and so compelling is that we have not seen a protracted ground conflict between two major states for decades. Um, all of the wars around the world te have tended to be irregular, internal, or if they're between major states, they tend to be fairly brief. They've not become protracted. Um, so this is going to create a real tension in the U.S. military. Um, on the one hand, we are going to have the mission of assisting allies in the future. And most of the problems that our allies are going to face are not going to be great power invasion. They may be proxy forces, they may be internal forces, they may be transnational terrorism, they may be insurgency, but losing the portfolio, uh, the, the expertise in the portfolio that we've gained, and we can have a long debate about how much expertise we've actually gained, but we have experience and that matters. Losing that is something we should be very reluctant to let go of, while at the same time recognizing that we're gonna have to move back to a world where artillery brigades can no longer be providing coin in downtown Baghdad. Their job is going to be to be artillery brigades and to fight in division-sized combined arms maneuver if we have to fight in Europe. The demands in Asia are a little less certain for ground forces, right? So we've got sort of this complex of three different kinds of war that we have to prepare for, one of which may be ground intensive in Europe, um, one of which may have ground components that are important in the Pacific, uh, and then this array of other threats. So I would say, you know, we have to, one of the reasons we look at three different boxes of war in both the junior and the senior course, one of the reasons that we spend time looking at irregular warfare as a recurring historic phenomenon is so we don't do again what we did in Vietnam, which is to take all the lessons we'd learned, put them in a footlocker, drop them down the basement, lock the door, and hope we never have to open the door again. Um, keeping them more accessible and continuing to not only reference them, but re-examine them as more information becomes available, especially on Afghanistan, as we found in the recent case. Um, this is all really valuable and it may play into great power competition because as we saw in the Cold War, as we've seen in previous great power competitions, proxies and allies fight in the periphery, sometimes with a lot of help from great powers. And that may be something we see again. Okay. Um, 
Dex, yeah, why don't we go to you next? I, I just have to follow right up on what Tim said is, is if, if anything, that would be one more reason to not jettison the, the lessons of the last 20 years is because the United States suffered um, because it, it, it could not quarantine the theaters that it was trying to uh, try to seek decisive outcomes in. Um, and for a wide variety of reasons, then lost control over, over the clock. Um, as it were, on a lot of those things. And I think what we're actually seeing right now in Ukraine is the United States, rather than acting as, um, you know, the enabler is acting much more like a spoiler. Mm -hmm. um, something that we saw in, in Iraq, for example, the, 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 there's not an equation, but, you know, the, way, the ways in which Iran was able to uh, affect timetables and, and undermine success and, and act as a spoiler in that particular conflict. So, you know, even if you're now on the opposite side of that, the less the lessons still pertain. Mm -hmm. um, you know, to what extent does a return to great power conflict and and sort of these straight up kind of territorial grabs, be it with, um, you know, be it with uh, Russia and Ukraine or potentially China, these um, Taiwan or China, these any of the the, the various island um, uh, the various island groups in the East China, the South China Sea, uh, whether or not the the aggressor in those those places can control the timetable, can control the uh, access uh, to that particular theater is a lesson that we suffered. We, we learned painfully over the last 20 years, but then, you know, something, something that uh, I think also our potential adversaries hopeful, hopefully have learned from as well, that if you cannot quarantine these places, it's very unlikely to achieve straight up decisive results. Mm -hmm. um, in attempting to rewrite the map either uh, geographically or ideologically. Interesting. Thank you, Dex. Dave, we'll go to you next. Sure. I, I will be a bit of a contrarian here. Luckily, I'm not running to stick around as chair of this S&P department, so I'll be <laughs> brutally disagreeable here. Um, I'm. What I would say is that the big lesson for me of the last 20 years of the war on terror is that we shouldn't be doing this. Um, that's perfectly fine for us to support allies doing this, but this is not really a job that we should be doing. Um, and so the lesson is grand strategic and, and, and policy level, don't do this stuff. Um, I think tactically and operationally, um, no, no military ever performs perfectly under Clausewitzian circumstances of fog and friction and chance. But I think tactically and operationally, the US military did pretty well. I think the problems that we faced in the war on terror were at the policy and grand strategic level um, in fighting wars that we shouldn't have been fighting. So that's what I say is the lesson is to be drawn at political and four-star leadership, not in terms of the tactical and operational lessons. Mm. Interesting. Our students have a couple of years before they get to that level. To... Just wanted to show you. <laughs> but, oh, good deal. Jim, we'll end with you. Okay. Well, I mean, you started off asking uh, how we should capture the lessons for the last 20 years. I, I would say take a, take a page from the Marine Corps book. I mean, they, back in 1940, the, the small wars manual was released, which was basically an effort to, to look back all the way as far as the Spanish-American War, the Philippine War, and then the Banana Wars of the 20s and 30s to try to figure out how to do this stuff. Navy and Navy and Marine Corps units uh, working together to try to try to to try to wage these small wars. So, if if we could if we could act in that spirit to basically record all those lessons and and again like like to, like uh, like was said, don't throw them in the basement. Try to try to keep that stuff fresh. And I think I think there's a really compelling reason to to actually keep that stuff fresh, and that's because well, two things: we're actually facing irregular warfare now in the gray zone. I mean, that's a, that's exactly what we're seeing in the in the South China Sea day in and day out. 
uh, China using maritime militiamen, using the China Coast Guard as, as, as unofficial implements of uh, maritime strategy. And challenging, as, challenging its, its neighbors and, and the United States, which is backing them to, tr to try to reverse what it is trying to do. So what they are doing, what they are doing is sort of a, a, a version of irregular warfare that doesn't involve missiles or gunfire flying around. But it is designed to, to realize the gains that you, that you normally associate with uh, geopolitical, uh, with warfare and other geopolitical uh, uh, offensive action, I guess you would say. So, so, so there's a compelling rationale. I would also say that our the our our strategy in the Western Pacific, as as it is shaping up, I would say it's I would say it's a it's a conventional strategy with a strong uh, irregular warfare flavor. I mean, think about what the Marines are talking about doing under the guise of expeditionary advanced base operations, under the guise of literal operations in a contested environment. I would they're they're talking about using island bases, missiles, and whatnot as implements of sea denial. A strategy generally associated with the weak and potentially with irregular warfare. So, I, I think our maritime strategy is actually taking on, so we can actually learn from the red teams. I would say, in a, in a sense, as we try to make things uh, tough on upon the power that, in all likelihood, will be the strongest power on day one of a conflict in the unfortunate event that we get in a scrap with China. So, I think there's I think there's a very comp compelling rationale for, uh, for for keeping up to date and, and thinking about excuse me thinking about these things. Awesome. Outstanding. All right. Well, as always, gentlemen, thank you for your time. It was an interesting and engaging discussion. And we will see everybody next time on Profiles of Strategy. Thank you. Thanks, John. Thanks. Thanks, John.